Today is a happy day, Resurrection Sunday. He is risen. Amen. Spot the Anglicans in the room. For you ex-Pentecostals, you have no clue what just happened there. <laughs> Let's turn in our Bibles, please, to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, please. Today we are celebrating the resurrection. We're celebrating the fact that our Savior, He lives. And so we're going to read from 1 Corinthians 15, verse 12, through to the end of verse 20. If you want a title for this message, I've called it The Glorious Resurrection. And this is the word of the Lord. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We were even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The firstborn, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Let's pray. Lord, you are a wonderful Savior. And Lord, it has been a joy to worship you in song. And now, we, Lord, we worship you in the word through preaching and through listening. Holy Spirit, would you guard our hearts this morning? Would you guard them and would you guide them into this word? Would they come alive as we realize Christ is alive? Lord, did you do only what you can do? No preacher can bring people from death to life, but you can. So, Lord, have your way in us by your grace. Amen. Good Friday, that which we celebrated just a few days ago, is the glorious moment where we get to celebrate the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I thought Riley did a wonderful job on Friday of taking us to Calvary once again. And it is kind of ironic that it is called Good Friday, given the horror of all that takes place on that day. But it is a Good Friday because it's on that day that we celebrate the reality that Jesus came after us on the greatest rescue mission ever told. It's on that day that we get to celebrate that we are indeed saved. We've been forgiven of our sin. It's been removed as far as the east is from the west. We've been justified before the Lord. We've been declared righteous before Him. If we put our faith in Him, we're not only forgiven and justified, we're not even just redeemed, we're adopted into the very family of God. As we saw last Sunday, there's a great and a greater still. It is great to be right with the judge. But it is greater still to be loved and accepted by the Father, is it not? We're not only redeemed, we're not only justified, we're adopted. We can know for sure that heaven is our glorious home. When Jesus Christ cried out, it is finished. What do you think was finished? His saving work was finished. It was done. He, that's why he didn't say, it's nearly finished, or it's possibly finished, or I'm nearly done. He cried out, it is finished. 
It's done. Put your faith in me as your Lord and Savior. It is done. The way of salvation is complete. Forgiveness, justification, redemption, adoption, the fact that heaven is your home, it's done. If you want it, come and get it. And in grace, through faith in Jesus Christ, he made it clear that upon salvation, he would not only go to sit at the right hand of the Father, but through the Holy Spirit, he would come to sit and live in your hearts. That for all those who put their faith in, the, in the Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, He would come to literally reside in our hearts. See, Christians, that's why we can say today that I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. Because He lives in you. That's why we can sing, yet not I, but through Christ in me. That's why we can stand firm and fear not and see the salvation of our Lord. It's because He lives in us. The power of the resurrected Jesus Christ lives in you. Is that not good news? That's why we can say with Paul, even in our sorrow, there is rejoicing. Because the risen Christ lives in me. He empowers me, yet not I, but through Christ in me. We celebrate all of those glorious things on Good Friday. Yet in all reality, my friends, if it was found that Jesus did not in fact rise from the dead, if it was found that Jesus did not in fact bodily, physically, and actually from the dead, then the whole of our faith, the whole of our Christianity, would in fact be in vain. It would crumble before our eyes because we would have bought in on the greatest hoax of all mankind. If Jesus did not, in fact, raise from the dead, everything we stand for would be in vain. And that's not my words. That's the, that's the words of God himself. Through the Apostle Paul, here in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 14. He said, And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. If he, in fact, is not raised from the dead, everything you stand for is pointless. It is a big waste of time. He says, for if Christ has not been raised, then our faith is futile. Because in actual fact, we're still in our sins. Your sins haven't been forgiven at all. Because he died. And he never rose again, showing him to be false. Showing him not to be who he said he was. If Christ has in fact not been raised, then all those that have fallen asleep so far, all those that have died previously, they're gone. There is no resurrection. We're done. They're still in their sin and they've perished. And if Christ has not been raised, then we of all people are most to be pitied. And that's why he says so emphatically and so clearly in verse 20, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. It would all be a big waste of time. And listen, here's the fact. He has been raised from the dead. See, Paul is very aware of the implications of a false resurrection. But he wants us to know, having reviewed the evidence, having considered his own life in the Scriptures, it is a fact that he did indeed raise from the dead. And so this morning, given the importance and significance of the resurrection, I want to use this Resurrection Sunday to examine this one most important question. And it's this. What is it that Paul had understood and seen and grasped that caused him to believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ as fact. 
What had he seen? What had he understood? What had he grasped in his life that caused him to say, I know it's true. It's a fact. That's what I want to answer today in this sermon. And if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, then firstly, thanks very much for coming. Seriously, whether you come like once or twice a year or you go to different places during the year, that's cool with me. I'm just really grateful that you're here today and you're hearing this message. And listen, I get it. There is something intuitive in our minds, is there not? There is something instinctive in us that goes, when we're hearing about a resurrected body, that goes, yeah, nah. There's an instinct in all of us that just thinks, yeah, I don't think so. I don't think that's likely. But here's the thing I want you to understand this morning. Just because the resurrection is radical doesn't mean that it's not reasonable. When you examine the evidence, you will see, although it is radical, although it is supernatural, it is actually very reasonable that it occurred when you examine the evidence. And I pray as you examine the evidence this morning that this, that this message would give you great hope that Jesus is alive. And that reality may change your life as it has changed mine. And if you're here today and you are a believer, you know Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior. I pray that these evidences, these truths, cultivate and strengthen fresh faith in your hearts today. Fresh faith that He has risen. Fresh faith in what that all means. Fresh faith that the one who is risen resides in your heart. And this is the power that He has to raise Jesus Christ from the dead. This is indeed good news. So five points this morning. They are quick points, which will be good news to probably everyone in the room. But five points this morning that I want us to examine around as we examine what is it that Paul understood and saw and grasped that caused him to believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ as a fact. Well, number one, the Bible records the resurrection as history. The first piece of evidence that we have for the resurrection is the reality that the Bible itself does indeed talk about it as history. See, for hundreds of years, particularly since the Enlightenment, um, so many people have tried to explain away the resurrection as a piece of figurative language or figurative literature. So, i.e., it's probably just a dream or a poem or a picture or a myth or a legend or an allegory or something like that. I mean, at different points in the Bible, Jesus says, I am a door. So maybe that's what he's doing here. You know, it's just like, he's not really rose again. It's just like a picture. Jesus says he's a vine. So, you know, we don't actually think he's a vine. He's a human being. So um, it's just a picture. For hundreds of years, that's what people have been trying to do. But in all reality, in all four of the Gospels, Gospels that themselves were written by people that Paul actually knew himself, in all four Gospels, they're actually recorded as history. They're not recorded as pictures or poems or myths or legends. They're recorded as histories. And accordingly, they are written with accuracy and precision in mind. I mean, take, for example, Luke. The Gospel of Luke was written by Luke, otherwise known as Dr. Luke. Okay? One of the things you find out about doctors is they are very precise and accurate, are they not? Which one of us would want to go to the doctor with a heart complaint? And then you say, oh, doctor, it's my heart. And he goes, oh, where is it? And you're like, do you not know? <laughs> and then you go, I think it's here. And he's, okay, so around here? And I'm like, well, yeah, around there, like there. You know, I would want precision if I was going in for an operation. And he said, oh, where does it hurt? And you're like, it hurts right there. And he goes, okay, so around here, we'll operate. I wouldn't want that. I want precision. I want a little cross knowing where he's going on. Doctors specialize in accuracy and precision. 
That's why we're informed that Dr. Luke wrote the book, because we're informed of something. that This guy is not like about here, okay? He is precise. And so he writes the gospel for Theophilus, most great Theophilus, most likely a high up Roman governor in some way. And he's employed by Theophilus to find out, listen, I've heard so much about this Christ. Find out everything about him. Can I believe it as true? And so this doctor goes on journeys to interview every eyewitness he can find. And he writes it all down for us in a book. Isn't that cool? And then he writes Acts as well as part two to help us see this is how the gospel went forward from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the ends of the earth. Dr. Luke was incredibly accurate and precise in the way he wrote. And as you can see in the other gospels, they were wonderfully accurate and precise as well. They take the time to let you know of certain details that show accuracy and precision. So let us not be thinking for even a moment that maybe the resurrection is just a picture or a poem or a myth. No, it's a piece of history. Number two, the Bible had always claimed that the resurrection would happen. No one should have been surprised when the resurrection happened. They were, they were really shocked. But they really shouldn't have been shocked. Because the Bible talks about it all the time. Throughout the Old Testament and in the very early part of the New Testament, there are over 300 prophecies spoken by a whole range of different voices that all relate into Jesus Christ. 300 of them. For years, people are prophesying about Jesus. Many relate to where he was born, what he's going to be like, and so on and so forth. Even more relate to his death. 29 prophecies are fulfilled on the day of his death. What it's going to be like for him, what he's going to say, what's going to happen, how the soldiers are going to divide his garments. All that stuff was prophesied hundreds of years before. And some prophecies even relate to his resurrection, which I think is really cool. Because in the Old Testament, when they didn't have a clue what was really to come, people were prophesying and talking to us about a risen Christ. Take, for example, the book of Isaiah. Isaiah is a book of prophecy and prediction that tells you about future events. It's in your Bibles. And one of the things that is talked about quite regularly in the book of Isaiah um, is about Jesus, the coming of Jesus, the coming of the Son of Man. And in Isaiah chapter 53, 700 years before Jesus even enters the earth, we hear a ton of things about him. We hear how he's going to be a man of sorrows, how he's going to be acquainted with our ways, but he's, how he's going to be rejected by everybody. Exactly what happens to Jesus Christ all the way through. Says how he's going to die and give his life as a ransom for many. Exactly what he said he was doing on the cross. And in Isaiah 53, verses 10 and 11, this is what it says. 700 years before Jesus is born. She says, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for sin, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of the soul, he shall see and be satisfied. All right, so it's subtle, but pay attention. When his soul makes an offering for sin, how do you do that? What was the offering for sin? It was death. The only acceptable offering for sin is death. That's what Jesus was doing. He gave his life as a ransom for many. Well, in that moment, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. He shall see and be satisfied. How? Well, by rising again. 
How can you see things if you're dead? How can you enjoy things if you're not around? The whole point is, it's subtle, but the whole point is, he's going to see things even though he's dead. Why? Because he's going to rise again. You think that one's good? It is good. But let's go back a bit further. A thousand years before Jesus is born in the Psalms. A thousand years before Jesus even exists on the face of the earth. Psalm 16. Psalm 16 is written by King David. And it is written, by and large, to talk about how Christians can go through hard times and how they can go through things that are tough. And so in verses 1 and 2 of Psalm 16, he says, Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, You are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. It's a wonderful lesson. He's talking to us about, listen, times can be hard. And notice what King David doesn't do. He doesn't go, times are hard, so I'm just going to mope in the corner. No. Times are hard, so Lord, I'm looking up. I'm trusting in you. I'm going to gaze on you in this moment. I'm going to rejoin myself in you in this moment. Lord, preserve me. And he does it all the way through the psalm until verse 10. In verse 10, he starts prophesying. This is what he says. He says, For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, i.e. death, or let your Holy One see decay. Well, that's weird, because I could take you to King David's bones. I think he's decayed quite a bit. So what is he on about? What on earth does he mean that your Holy One will not see decay? Because he did die. His, his heart effectively was abandoned to Sheol. He did see decay. What, what is going on there? Well, St. Peter talks to us in Acts chapter 2 about what is going on there because he tells us in Acts chapter 2 that David was prophesying at that point about Christ. He was talking about the Holy One of Israel. He was talking about the One who was and is and is to come, the Messiah, the Christ, the King, and how God in His grace will not see His Holy One see decay. You don't decay in three days. It takes far longer. Jesus had not decayed. He's prophesying about Jesus, a thousand years before Jesus is even born, already pointing to the fact that this Messiah isn't just going to come, he's going to rise again. And then when Jesus does walk the earth, he adds his voice to the choir, predicting not only his death, but also his resurrection on three different occasions. So Mark chapter 8, he says, The Son of Man must be killed, and after three days will rise again. Now, for those of you that come regularly to Sovereign Grace, you will be well aware that the disciples are not the brightest sparks out there. So he tells them again, Mark chapter 9, the Son of Man will be killed and after three days will rise again. They still don't get it. Mark chapter 10, the Son of Man will be mocked and spit on and flogged and killed, but three days later, he will rise again. There should have been no excuse for them not to understand what's going to happen. They didn't get it. They still don't get it. They never get it. The disciples never get things. They're just like us. They're slow of hearing, hard of heart. But Jesus had told them, prophesied three times, when we get to Jerusalem, guys, I'll be mocked, I'll be spat on, I'll be flogged and killed. But you don't need to worry, because three days later, I'm coming back. I'm going to be alive. The Bible itself would always claim that the resurrection would indeed happen. And we need to understand that we need to put that in the part of the evidence that we stand on in the resurrection. But that ain't it. It gets better. Number three, 
the sheer number of witnesses. And this is where I start to get really quite stoked about the whole thing. The sheer number of witnesses that give claim to having seen Jesus Christ alive after he died. I mean, I'm sure we could understand it if all Jesus had appeared to is three drunk guys on like a pathway at the back of a street somewhere. We'd probably be wondering for the rest of our lives, did he, didn't he? I don't know. Are there too much to drink? Who knows? But Jesus actually revealed himself to over 520 people. That's quite a lot. That's like two and a half times how many people are in this room right now. And each one of them queuing up to say, he's risen, he's risen, he's risen. I saw him, I saw him, I saw him. That's a lot of people, is it not? Over 500 people talks about it in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 to verse 11. This is what he says. He says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace towards me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. So Jesus Christ, post-death, rises again and then reveals himself to over 520 people. Is that not a lot of people? I mean, you imagine being in a court of law, and there are 520 witnesses that come forward to say, yeah, I saw it, I saw it, it happened. That's a lot of evidence. James McDowell, a church historian, says it this way. He says, Do you realize that if those 500 people were to testify in a court of law for only six minutes each, including cross-examination, you would have an amazing 50 hours of first-hand testimony. 15 hour, 50 hours of people saying, Yeah, he's risen, he's risen, I saw him, I saw him. That is a huge amount of evidence. I mean, I remember when I was 12 years old going to court because I'd seen a guy hit a, uh, one of those cash register things with a hammer. And there was three of us that saw him. I was in there for about 30 seconds. What did you see? Well, I saw him hit with a hammer. Thank you very much. And I was out. I was like, oh, nothing. <laughs> but you imagine 520 people all queued up to say, yeah, I, uh, what did you see? Well, I saw Jesus. I knew him before. And um, it's definitely him. I saw him afterwards. Okay, well, thanks for your time. The next person comes in. Hey, what did you see? Well, I saw Jesus. All right. 520 people. No court of law in Australia would throw those 520 people out and go, nah. It would be true. It'd be cast as legally true. It must be true. Because 520 people gave evidence to the fact and the proximity of these people to the event. This book, 1 Corinthians, was written only about 30 to 40 years after the event itself. Which is why he says, listen, some have fallen asleep, but many are still alive. What he's saying is, listen, Go and ask them. They're still around. If you don't believe me, go and talk to them. Most of them are still around. I'll give you their names if you want. Just go and find them and say, hey, what did you see? And they will tell you, I saw the risen Christ. He's giving it as evidence again and again and again that you can build your life on this. This is true. Number four, the transformation 
of the disciples. This for me then is when the evidence starts to get ever so compelling. When God by his grace through Jesus starts completely changing people's lives. See after Jesus died the disciples were in complete disarray. The disciples were not some old, wise, seasoned, mature men. They were a group of teenagers. They were either late teens or early 20s. They were having a go for Jesus, okay? That's all they were. It was like an overgrown youth group. (laughs) Jesus is just gone. He's their master. He's their king. And they are now afraid. And just a few days after his death, they can be found in the story, hiding together in an upper room, convinced that because of the authorities, because the authorities have killed their leader, that surely then they will be next. And they are scared stiff. So they're actually hiding in an upper room, huddled together, wondering what on earth to do. And yet within days of that moment, a dramatic change takes place. These men leave the attic, they leave the other room and begin to boldly proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ in the very streets of Jerusalem that Jesus had just walked through onto the way to Golgotha. They start to proclaim Christ and Him crucified. They start to proclaim all the joys of Jesus Christ, the very streets that Jesus was paraded on as a traitor, the very streets that they led the Savior through to His death. These men now go out into and boldly proclaim... Christ and him crucified, proclaiming aloud, He is risen! He's alive! We can believe in this! Let's give our lives to this! It's true! Same men, huddled together, afraid, scared stiff, now standing out front, boldly proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. Why? What could have possibly caused such a dramatic change in their life? Well, in the Gospels, we discover what caused the dramatic change is that Jesus Christ, the risen Jesus Christ, appeared to them. And as soon as they saw him, they realized everything we stand for is true. Let's go. It completely changed their lives. You know, ultimately, many decades on from that moment, all of them, except for one, would be killed and martyred for their faith. Some of them were beheaded, some of them were crucified. One of the disciples was actually crucified upside down because he didn't feel worthy to be crucified just like the Savior. Some of them were put on stakes and covered in tar and then set alight for entertainment. Some of them were killed by lions, dragged into coliseums and then just let to run as lions ripped them apart. Blaise Pascal, the famous 17th century mathematician, once said, I believe most the witnesses that are willing to get their throats cut. And so do I. People dying for their faith. Do you know what the disciples were claiming all the time as they were willing to be martyred for their faith? The thing that they would not be moved on is this. He is risen. I saw him. I not only knew him when he was alive, I saw them kill him. And then I saw the risen Christ. It is true. And so I give my life to it. I believe most the witnesses that are willing to get their throats cut. All of the disciples, everyone to a man, was completely and dramatically turned around by Jesus Christ. Their lives were completely changed. And then number five, the transformation of the skeptics. See, it's one thing for disciples, maybe, to 
have their lives turned around by Jesus. But I think the most compelling piece of evidence for me is the transformation of the skeptics. See, 2,000 years ago when Jesus walked the earth, not everyone who hung around with him actually believed in him at all. And yet the New Testament tells us that from rising from the dead, Jesus encounters a whole number of different people and their lives are completely transformed, including some of the skeptics, including some of the people that prior to Jesus' death didn't believe in him at all. Take, for example, James, the brother of Jesus. I mean, imagine, I've got a brother, I've got a younger brother, three years younger. Imagine my brother, Andrew, saying one day, hey, Dave, you're not going to believe this. What? I'm God. You know what you're going to get? You're going to get a slap. That's what you're going to get. If that, if that, because you're like, yeah, righto, mate. You know, you get, give me a break. I'm sure you are, yeah. And, and I'm the tooth fairy. You know, uh, thanks for playing. You, know, you imagine the scene. I mean, this is just a normal, regular family. People don't claim to be God all the time. You're like, yeah, thanks. Good. I'm a unicorn. This is really lovely. You know, I can just imagine the, the talk around the dinner table. Hey, mom, guess what? Uh, yeah, Jesus told me you're wrong. He's God, apparently. <laughs> you imagine what's happening. This is just off the charts what is taking place. And in, so in Mark's Gospel in chapter 3, we discover that Jesus' family were so convinced that he was crazy that they went to get him so that effectively they could lock him up in the house. And so they can't find him. He's out and about. They're like, where is he now? Oh my gosh, he's in that room. Oh goodness me, he's talking to people. Guys, he's talking to people. He's in there. He's spouting off again about, oh God, yeah, thanks for coming. Hey, can, you, can you get him for me? <laughs> that's the guy that's speaking. Yeah, he's my brother. Come here, son. You know, I can just see what's going on. They honestly think he's crazy. They think he has lost his mind. Literally, just read the text. It's all in there. They're really worried for him. They think he's gone mad. And then in John's Gospel, in chapter 7, John tells us flat out that his brothers never believe in him. They don't think he's God. They just think he's Jesus. They're his brother. But then we're told by Paul that when Jesus died and then rose from the dead, he sought out James. Did you see his name there just a few minutes ago? He's in the list. Jesus sought out his brother James, and when he encountered James, James's life was radically turned upside down. Because in that moment, he became a Christian. In that moment, he realized his brother was not just his brother. He was God. And in that moment, he bowed at his brother's feet and said, I trust you. I give you my life. I'm in. James, in that moment, became a Christian, having encountered the risen Christ. Just a few years on from that moment, James would be leading the church in Jerusalem. He would be boldly proclaiming the gospel in all of Jerusalem. So many of Paul's writings would be, that's why they talk about, I better speak to James about that. I better speak to James about that. James was a key figure in the early church. It was Jesus' brother. And James himself would go on just a few decades later to die for the faith as well. You see, the Roman authorities and the Jewish authorities, they wanted all of Christianity squashed. That's why they killed Jesus. That's why they wanted him gone. They realized, you're starting to take all these disciples away from us. This is not going to work. We're going to need to kill you. But then, upon the report that Jesus rose from the dead... People are starting to preach this. And so now guess who enemy number ones are? It's all the people that are preaching it. Just shut them up. That's why they're being killed all the time. And on one occasion, the authorities came to James and they demanded that he go up to the top of the temple, actually stand on the roof. And they all stood there with spears and swords just underneath him. 
And they said, here's what you're going to say. Tell all them that you've been preaching lies. Tell them. Tell them that he's dead. That he's not risen at all. Or we're going to kill you. So James gets up to the very roof. And you know what he starts preaching? He starts preaching. He is risen. He is alive. Our Savior and King has come. And as soon as he starts preaching, they start running up after him. And they actually push him off the top of the temple. And he falls. It would be a huge distance. But incredibly, he isn't actually dead. So he picks up his head from the floor and he starts to proclaim, It's true. He's alive. So they start to pick up stones and start stoning him. And even the stones don't seem to be killing him. And so he continues to testify all he can. And Eusebius, the second century historian, says that they had to club him to death. And as they're beating him with clubs, he starts praying, wrapped up in a ball. And Eusebius says that he starts praying, Father, forgive them, for they know what they know, not what they do. He instinctively says the same words that his brother had prayed, crying out for their souls. Why would he do that? All his life growing up, didn't believe in him. It's just little brother Jesus. And then he gives his life for him. He gives his whole life for him, unwilling to cave in on the fact that Jesus is God and he's alive. The only reasonable explanation for that is that he has encountered the risen Christ himself. Nothing else makes sense. And then, of course, finally there's Paul. Paul himself, the author of this text. See, prior to faith in Jesus Christ, Paul of Tarsus was not like a good Jewish boy growing up in a Christian home. He was the Osama bin Laden of the day. He hated Christians. He hated the Christian faith. And so he passionately gave his life away to doing all he could to kill Christians. That's what he wanted to do with his life. So the first time we encounter him in the book of Acts, Stephen is being stoned because he's preaching the gospel. They're stoning him right before his eyes. And the Apostle Paul stands up with the people and he says, Hey, listen, I'll hold your coats. Go ahead. And as he's holding their belongings so they don't get stolen, they're stoning Stephen. And it says that he's looking on with heartily agreement, smiling. Yeah, this is what we should be doing. Well, after they stoned Stephen in history, a lot of the Christians start to leave Jerusalem. They're literally fleeing for their lives. It's called the dispersion or the dispersia. That's how the gospel actually starts to spread so quickly as they start to leave Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria into the ends of the earth. But the Apostle Paul realizes real quick, young Paul of Tarsus realizes they're all fleeing. So he goes to the, to the officials, the Jewish officials, and says, listen, let me go and get them. Let me run after them. Let me capture them. Let me bring them back to Jerusalem. Let us try them. Let us kill them. I want to do this. I want to lead the line for you. Will you let me? And so they agreed. You go ahead. And so Paul began to make his way from Jerusalem to Damascus. It would be like going from Sydney to Newcastle. He starts to make his way there, and he's on his way to Damascus to grab people, women, children, men, no prejudice. I want to kill them all. Everything they stand for, I want to kill them. <coughs> And on the way to Damascus, just outside Damascus, he is knocked off his horse by a bright light. He can't see. And he says in that moment, as he relays the story, in that moment, I saw the risen Christ. The Osama bin Laden of the day saw the risen Christ. And in a moment, boom, his life went from Christian persecutor 
to Christ's proclaimer in a moment. He realized, the people I've been persecuting are telling the truth. I must stand with them. I can't go to kill them. I need to stand with them. I need to proclaim Christ and Him crucified. This man would go on to write over a third of the New Testament. He would go on to speak to thousands of people, lead thousands of people to Christ, all proclaiming all the time, He lives! Christ lives! He is God! I saw Him with my own eyes, the risen Christ. And around 66 AD, He would go on to be beheaded for His faith on a road just outside Rome, always proclaiming, I will not give in on this. My Christ is true. He has risen. My friends, you tell me, why would a man like that go through what he went through? Why would he go from gospel persecutor to gospel proclaimer? Why would anybody with a brain do that? There's only one explanation. He's telling the truth. He encountered the risen Christ and it changed his life. So much so where he would not be moved and he just had to tell everybody else about it. So where then does that leave us? Well, that leaves us, I think, back where we started. Just because the resurrection is radical doesn't mean that it's not reasonable. Just because the resurrection is supernatural does not mean it is unreasonable to stand on it as truth. The Bible records the resurrection as history. Not a myth or a dream or an allegory, but history. The Bible always claimed that this would happen, prophesying thousands of years before the birth of Jesus, that this is exactly what would happen. Over 520 people see Jesus Christ proclaiming, He is risen. The disciples are totally transformed. These young men that are scared stiff woman that are proclaiming the gospel the next and go on to give their life away for Jesus. And that even included some skeptics. Some skeptics like his brother James and like the apostle Paul. My friends, if you're here today and you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, yeah, then is my question. Having examined the evidence, what then is your verdict? Have examined the truth. What do you then believe? You know, for some of you today, you might be thinking, man, this is just intense. And this is just in the too hard basket. <laughs> because if this is true, this is going to change my life. And so uh, I'm just going to give it a miss. I don't, don't look me in the eye. It's awkward. Just, just move away. I get that. But my friends, if this is true, then your very eternity is totally dependent on how you react to Jesus. Don't wait another day. If this is put in the too hard basket by you, if you just want to reject it all, don't do that. I want to encourage you, keep coming back to church. Keep coming back. You don't have to come just like Easter. It's a lovely day, lovely. Next Sunday's going to be lovely too. And the Sunday after. Keep coming back. Because we'd love to tell you more about Jesus. We'd love to tell you more about the one who changed our lives and keep introducing you to him. Maybe though you're here today as an unbeliever, but actually you examine the evidence and you believe. Well, my friends, I want to encourage you then. If you believe, put your faith in Jesus Christ then as your Lord and Savior today. 
And know then personally this great salvation that he died and rose again to bring you. See, the Bible's clear that God made us. It was God who knitted us together in our mother's womb. It was God himself who put us together. And he put us together to find our identity and our joy and our purpose in him. He's the creator. Somebody's not happy about it, but some people are. He's the creator of all. But in our humanity, all what we did is we exchanged the creator for the created. We wanted this and we want to reject that. So I'm just going to live this. And if anybody comments on what he thinks about that, I'm going to tell them to get lost. Because that must be prejudice. Or they're bigoting. How dare they say these things? What's that all about? That's the very nature of sin. We don't want to be told nothing. I want to think that I created myself. I live for myself. I do what I like. Who are you to tell me otherwise? Well, God. God tells you otherwise. We all rejected him in and of ourselves. We all ran away from him. And we all decided, I don't want you. I'm going to enjoy everything you created, and I'm going to enjoy it for myself. And how dare you comment on it? That's what sin really is. But God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son so that anyone who believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. At just the right time, God sent forth his son to die for you. What was the cross all about? Why was it so gruesome? It was so gruesome because that was the consequence of your sin. That was the consequence of our rejection of him. Either you take it or he takes it. And God in his grace said, I'm going to come after you and I'm going to take it. And then he makes it clear, if you want me to take it for you, then here's what you need to do. For if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, then you will be saved. Good Friday is the greatest gift you've ever imagined. It's the moment where God says, I'm going to give you a chance. I'm going to offer you salvation. Grab my hand. Through grabbing my hand in faith, you'll be forgiven of your sin and redeemed. You'll know that heaven is your home. You'll be adopted into my family. I'm reaching for you. Well, how do you grab his hand? By believing in your heart that Jesus Christ really did die for you. And by believing in your heart and your mouth that he really is the king and rising and going forth and following him. His hand is there. You could walk away again. But one day his hand ain't going to be there. Take it. Take it. My friends, if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, put your faith in him as your Lord and Savior and know the glories of Easter. Know the glories of this great salvation that he came to bring you through his life and his death and resurrection. And my friends, if you're here today and you are a believer, I simply want to encourage you, having examined the evidence again for yourself, Jesus, your Savior and your King, he really is alive. He's alive. He is risen from the dead. That's why you can know, as sure as you sit here, I'm saved. I'm completely forgiven of my sin. It's been removed as far as the east is from the west. I'm completely justified before him. It's scandalous grace. I sin all the time. And yet he sees me clothed in the righteousness of his son. 
And he not only saved me and redeemed me, he now calls me his son. He cares for me and loves me and sings over me. And one day heaven will be my home and the first face I will see will be his. I know it for sure, as you can know for sure, through faith in Jesus Christ, who is indeed alive. But he is not just seated at the right hand of the Father. Not just. For all those who have put their faith in him as their Lord and Savior, he's also seated through the Holy Spirit in your hearts. That's why you can say, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. That's why you can sing, yet not I, but through Christ in me. And that's why you can stand firm and fear not and see the salvation of your Lord. He's alive and he sits in you. Don't let anybody say, I'm just overwhelmed, I'm so overwhelmed, I'm so nervous. Look within, not subjectively to your feelings, look within to Christ, the risen Christ. How much power is in you? Well, the same power that rose Jesus from the dead. Quite a lot. He's alive and risen and he's in you. May that stir and strengthen the faith of your heart. He is alive seated at the right hand of the Father and through the Holy Spirit in you. What peace and what courage and what strengthening of the faith that should indeed give us. Amen. Today we get to celebrate with two individuals, two friends who have indeed put their faith in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Saviour. And we get to celebrate with them the glories of what it means to be saved. Amen. So I'm going to pray and then let's baptise some folk. Lord, I do thank you for your word. I thank you for its clarity. Lord, your word in no way leaves us guessing. Lord, I thank you that you did indeed rise again. And you did not leave us scratching our heads as to whether, can we really believe this? It seems maybe flaky. Lord, I thank you for making it so clear in your word that this isn't flaky. This is truth that we can give our lives away for. We can stand on your word as truth. We can stand on the gospel with power and strength. Lord, help us to be bold for you. Help us to live boldly in faith for you. And Lord, for all those that don't know you, Lord, I do pray that even now they would turn from their sin and grab your hand and know the salvation that you bring. That even now they would put their faith in you as their Lord and Savior. And that would change everything. In Jesus' name, amen.